Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. Hopefully, you didn't wait too long because we are in the middle of a really fantastic story. Yeah, I don't think it took that long. They just had to listen to the intro after they pressed play. So here we are. Well, I think we actually like released them a day or two apart. Okay. So they've been waiting for a while then, I guess. Well, welcome to the Poor Pearls Almanac. Welcome back. My name is Elliot. This is Andy, and I'm here with our co-host, Matt. How's it going? What's up? Yeah, what what are we talking about today? Are we going to ease into it? We're back on a frame. So one of the things we found out when we were doing this episode is there's not a lot of pictures of this dude when he's young. I found one, and I have just shared it about 10 seconds before we started recording with my humble co-hosts. And is it what you expected, guys? I guess, like, the young picture is more what I was expecting. Andy hit us with this, like, also this, like, picture of him. How old would you say he is in the older picture? 70. You, right, okay. So he looks like the like guy from Up, if instead of, like, balloons on his house, he just, like, planted a bunch of corn in his front yard. Like <laughs> Yeah, that's, he looks exactly like that. That's, I don't know about... I don't see that. I see, like angry old man who that is was, just yells at kids for no reason that was the guy from you're you're describing the guy from up he yelled i've at, never watched it, up i've been told it's too sad so i haven't watched it oh it's super sad you should it's watch it's pretty it. sad it's but it's yeah good. like an angry that's what he is at the beginning of the movie he's like an angry old dude who's telling kids and construction workers to fuck off okay well then now that we've settled that it's like yeah. we're looking into a crystal ball about my future <laughs> uh great so um let's talk if you didn't check out the first part of this episode i think we didn't say it explicitly but now i'm going to please go check that out otherwise this is probably not going to make a lot of sense you're missing like some context for what we're talking about today right elliot yeah i think so it's um what we're talking about today is a riveting story about a guy that chances are 99 percent of our audience hasn't heard of but we've kind of broke it down in episode one our part one and uh we're talking about Ephraim Hernandez Zolokotzi or Solo yeah so we're multi-part episode people now congratulations this is who we are we only do multi-part episodes right Matt yeah Andy's getting more long-winded yeah watch out it's this is how it begins it's the natural progression just like the episodes are going to start stretching to like hour hour and a half they're going to be like 10 parters 10-part, three-hour episodes. Yeah. Perfect. I guess we should start adding pop quizzes and tests, and we should probably just go ahead and make this a class. Yeah, I mean, you might get a certificate in the mail just for listening. You don't have to give us your address. We have it. Listen, let's do that, because I need an honorary doctorate. <laughs> Nobody will hire me. <laughs> and we can start charging people that student loan money. Yeah, we were just talking about student loans. It's really fun when you get to be in your 30s and still have them. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Maestro Zolo. Yeah, I mean, there we we covered a lot before, so we're gonna we're just gonna kind of jump right into it. Yeah, so it was all it was all context, right? Like we sort of framed up why his work was important and kind of went over his contemporaries and and the time frame itself, right? Yeah, his youth, his youth. We covered kind of where he came from. We ended the last episode highlighting his ability to get famous and then to also kind of 
talk shit about the people who signed his paychecks and that he he had some like very clear frustration that was starting to become evident in his work he really cared about helping the campesinos but he really worried that you know with the development of the green revolution in mexico that the technology that was supposed to save mexico was in fact erasing their cultures their practices and basically what it meant to be uh you know rural and mexican and this is something that unfortunately don't have any actual written evidence of his opinions in the things that he has said, it seems he does really struggle with this idea of like technology and agriculture. And uh, he seems pretty pessimistic about the power dynamics that exist with like the utility of like a lot of this technology. Okay, so let's let's unpack that a bit. So he's a strong supporter in the socialist revolution, which was liberalized during his time in government. And he sees these programs being rolled out to fix farming in places that don't really need fixing just like making them more productive for the companies and where he sees that the country by and large isn't a whole lot better off after this like supposed green revolution right yeah and and that's what we kind of see as he um or not just necessarily as he does anything but as the green revolution you know takes foot the production does increase, not to the scale that the Green Revolution promised, but it does increase. Um, however, the population increases concurrently with that growth. So like, there doesn't seem to be any material gains for society from this. You know, you can make the argument that maybe it is staving off these negative impacts, but like from the day-to-day perspective, it doesn't really seem like anything's gotten better because of this. And for Zolo... What he ends up doing in this time is he starts focusing away from these technological aspects and really instead of dwelling on the dread of the thing that he doesn't like, he focuses on his concerns for the campesino farmers. Basically, his big concern is their knowledge being totally disregarded by the state, as well as like, you know, the fact that we have these extension trainers going out to farms that have never farmed and telling them how they should be farming and what they're doing wrong without any context for the way that these people have lived for thousands of years. As this kind of became how he articulated his thoughts and opinions on what was happening, big surprise, the Rockefeller Foundation was not as excited about the stuff he was doing. But he was already kind of famous, so like there was only so much they could do to really challenge this. In 1956, in the midst of this massive structural change of agriculture in Mexico, Zolo was basically cut off from working in his area of specialization around corn and things like that. His last position during his time with the Rockefeller Foundation was actually going to study grasses at Harvard. So they took him off of corn and these motherfuckers literally sent him out to pasture, like with grass. I know corn, corn is a grass, but still, damn. Grass is interesting. Don't go knocking grass. I mean, no one's criticizing grass, but like, yeah, it's it seems pretty harsh when you're like world renowned. And he, he wasn't just world renowned for corn. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But he has multiple things that he's world renowned for. And they're like, don't study those things. We're going to go stick you someplace else. That That's pretty fucking brutal, right? Yeah, that must have sucked. Yeah. So that kind of gets us up to the point where he was teaching. This is about around that time when he starts teaching. But we have to back up to understand the context of academia in Mexico at this time, because it's really important in this other role that he plays in the evolution of agriculture in Mexico, because not only was he world renowned for his work with corn, as well as some other plants, he was also a chief figure in the evolution of agricultural education 
in Mexico. So we need to frame up why what he does is so significant. So if we remember in the last episode, we talked about the guy, the president, Cardenas, who's a socialist and was president up until 1940, right? One of the things that made him really unique is that he supported a moderate successor under the guise of like, this is for democracy. And that's when we kind of saw this liberalization of like agriculture and agronomy and all that stuff. And we had these American companies like the Rockefeller Foundation, they all came in to help improve the quality of farming, so to speak, in Mexico. I don't like where this is going. No, you shouldn't. Oh, good. Because I feel like we've talked about this before, probably many times before. Yeah, it's a tale that's old as time. But yeah, let's let's get into it. So the National Agricultural College in Chapingo. This is like the OG agricultural college. It's been around since the 1850s. In uh, 1943, at the early stages of the Green Revolution, the Rockefeller Foundation, our, our good friends with the endless checks, dumped so much money into it, they basically run it. Now, we, we talked about the role of things like model farms and showing these new products that we can grow and why the new way of farming is so much better than the old way. These are like kind of world's fair kind of things. Like they were just like making them like these flashy events, basically, about how great, you know, think about like the stuff we used to see if you look at like the old vintage ads of like the 1960s being like the homes of the future. And it was like, and the house makes your dinner for you. And like, it's got like the cheesy robot that like sticks out a pan or something like that. That's still a good idea, though. I'd I'd love a house to, well, I guess maybe that's just a built-in microwave. You want to live inside a foreman grill? (laughs) Maybe. That's kind of a weird thing to wish for, but okay, Matt. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I'm I'm tired of making dinner. Your bed can be a panini press. That's that's not too bad, I guess. It's like a built-in heater. Panini press D's nuts. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, this is what the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to say anything. I'm just going to shake my damn head. Okay. So you can go ahead and panini press your nuts if you want. We're going to stand back. I'd prefer not to. I'm not the one with my house that's automated. So I'm basically living in a cave, as you guys have pointed out repeatedly. So, so these far, these farming models, right? They these experimental farms are like basically that, but for agriculture, they're like breaking out the coolest, weirdest, most expensive technology with this idea of like, look at how cool everything could be if only you guys invested in what we're trying to teach you how to do, and you know, take all these technologies and we'll fund it. You know, all the same crap that we've heard like across the globe, right? This is kind of the first time it's been done outside the United States. So this is all part of that National Agricultural College. Its campus was basically a PR wing for the Rockefeller Foundation and the American way of growing food. The campus not only was like this giant like exhibit for people to consume, it also ate up like any of the land around it that it needed to like basically build this green future, so to speak. And, like, that's just the, the bad stuff they did on the surface. Okay, I really don't like where this is going now. Y- yeah, you, you really, really shouldn't. This is not the panini press of the future. Okay, so it sounds like it gets better. Go on. Yes. So I do want to do a really quick bit of history on the NAC, that National Agricultural College, simply because it becomes the focal point for why, again, our good friend Miestro Zolo proves himself not just to be, like, a really great botanist, but like a very important tactician for like the future of the campesinos versus like these international corporations. 
I think I'm gonna need a beer. Yeah, let's let's take five or maybe twenty. Uh, run the commercials, Dom. Hit the press. I think we should do a fake commercial for like a bed press. A bed or Norm's, panini or Norm's nuts. You buy you buy a pound of nuts, you get a few free panini panini press. <laughs> Special you deal. Nuts panini <laughs> press for free. Uh, damn it! I'm gonna have to do that, aren't I? Normal All Norm right. making a comeback. Normal Norm. Normal Norm is normal nuts getting crushed in a panini press. All of that stays in this. Dom, we, start from Matt. Yeah, we might just like use. This could be the commercial. The commercial that's recorded during the time of the commercial. No, no, I need Andy to sell it in the voice. <laughs> it, it's too good. It's too good. Are you doing normal norm, Andy? <laughs> what, what if I just put music to the background of this and we're like, that is the commercial. And yeah, it is weird how it sounds like it flowed like perfectly between the two parts of the episode. It's a, it's a little meta maybe, but I think we could pull it off. Too confusing too confused all right all right all right leave it in dumb leave it in dumb uh much like matt and the panini press leave it (laughs) in oh my god (laughs) when you fly fly with us enjoy our panoramic windows fresh fish and non-stop flights to ireland united bear lines where everywhere bears care we fare with flair find out more at porporals.com so yeah we talked about 1854 the school opens right by the 1920s it becomes more commonly called just chapingo and in 1943 under president camacho we'll see oh, no wait so camacho like the you got a lib and his name is camacho like like idiocracy yes it's what plants crave yeah it it uh, he did not know what plants craved but he hired people who knew who knew what plants craved or he thought he did electrolytes right yes that's it do you do you think mike judge knew this wait, wait, wait. i'm looking at a picture of this guy okay he looks like terry cruz if he was white with neck 100 pounds heavier and like irish and this dude's the president of mexico yeah yeah he looks like a a smushed thumb with like a weird Don Draper toupee or something. Yeah, he does kind of look like a thumb with a Don Draper haircut. <laughs> it looks like the thumbnail facing the other way, and that's just his chin. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah it, it's a look. Maybe this is a bad photo of him, but I it, think... Or it's a really good photo of him. I mean, the guy was named fucking Camacho, all right? Like, does he look like a Camacho? Are you threatened by him? No. Maybe if he, maybe if this was like Wolf of Wall Street, but this guy kind of looks like a weenie. I mean, he seems like he could be kind of annoying when he's hungry. Got the hangs, the hang, the hangries, hangry. <laughs> yeah. If he didn't have a Snickers, he'd get like real annoying, you know. <laughs> maybe he gave the plant Snickers. Is it is that what it they didn't, crave? Didn't look like he gave anything Snickers. He gave those to himself. Were Snickers around in 1943? Anyways, so 1943. Okay, when the plants begin to crave not Snickers or electrolytes. Or electrolytes. So when the plants begin to crave, we see how Chapingo starts to become ground zero for the Green Revolution. And as we'll see, there's uh, resistance to this ground zero. That's pretty ominous. So basically for the school's first 50 or so years, it was just kind of like this redheaded stepchild that got no funding or resources or really anything. It was just kind of like, yeah, we're supposed to have an agricultural school. It's right there. Go have fun. Here's some seeds. 
And uh, it kind of continued that way. But during the Civil War in 1913, violence in Mexico City leaked into the school as the government hunted down a rebel on school grounds and executed him in front of students on the baseball field. That's brutal. Yeah, it's it's not a good look. I guess Civil Wars be like that, but Jesus. They be like that. Now, the students were really repulsed by the violence because like, yeah, they're 18, 19 year old kids seeing a dude just get like blown up like fucking Halo. And it, it really left a, a lasting mark on the school. When the Puerta government, that was uh, the one responsible for the execution, fell, the school was actually closed for five years. Many students were radicalized from this experience, and many were recruited to the Zapata cause, particularly to focus on agrarian reform in Mexico. Now, if you're not familiar with the Zapata cause and the Zapatistas, which came decades later, worth a read. We did an episode talking about them very briefly. The point here is that the school is like this really interesting and complicated relationship with like the campesinos, the peasant class and like listening to the government. Okay, so that's all pretty, pretty fucked up, I guess. Like, they they had, yeah, that's it's not ideal. No, no. I thought the school we were setting up was going to be fucked up, but this seems terrible. I mean, yeah, the, the 99 red balloons that we blow up are not very similar to this that is very different levels of m- messy my god you brought up the song again it's a little that's yeah. a little topical insight for our listeners when's this going to come out now for a while right uh i think like may right so, so, hope, so by then we'll have probably gotten through all 99 balloons though right yeah I imagine it at this rate that's what we're looking at right are they red uh, the first one was wasn't it the, no it was white Oh, now my song seems stupid. <laughs> but in a sense, they're red because they're communist. So, it's a symbolic red? Yeah, it's a, it's a political red. It's about the implication. <laughs> yeah. So um, these students that were totally had PTSD from this experience, they managed to eventually, throughout the course of history, become very influential in the agricultural departments within the state, primarily because there weren't a whole lot of agricultural schools. So like... The people that graduated are kind of your only option, right? And they influenced the school's future by setting higher benchmarks for admissions, updating curriculum, you know, all the stuff that's supposed to be good for colleges, right? And it was around this time uh, in 1924 that they moved the campus to Chapingo, hence the reason people started calling it that in order to have access to more green space. Now, keeping to its roots, outside of the campus would be what's called an Ejido cooperative that reminded students for whom they studied. And Ishidos are basically like common land space, like commons? Yeah, it's basically the commons. And it was supposed to like symbolize the campesinos that these programs were to improve their lives, not to make corporations more money. Hmm, weird, right? So I think you guys see where I'm going with this. Yeah, and that's Ejidos for my Spanish speakers, because that's totally a J. Yeah, Ejidos for me. Ejito, Ejido, Ejido. Like when I get my Fajitas, Elliot. Um, Sizzling Fajitas. Okay, so the Rockefeller <laughs> Foundation got in there, just like Andy did, butchering Fajitas. Fajitas in my George Foreman grill bed. Yeah, what could go wrong? I don't know. Nothing. I, I, I see no flaws in this plan. We still haven't, in all of this, we haven't mentioned that one episode of The Office where he steps out of, where Michael steps out of bed into a George Foreman grill. Yeah, when he likes to have his bacon ready for when he wakes up in the morning. Yeah. I, feel, I mean, it's not related, but I feel like it's it'd be weird if we don't mention it. It's worthwhile. I mean, we'll just make a meme out of it. That's you getting out of bed in the morning because you live in your George, George Foreman, Foreman grill. grill bed. 
anyway. came full circle. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. We did it, guys. Congratulations. The weed's working. Yeah, I feel like this is just like one of those things that it's like just a mess, right? So like you've got this very symbolic thing going on. And then we've got these Americans showing up and doing their thing, right? To fully understand the school and like how it operated, like they actually had statues of revolutionaries, massive murals and flags reflecting indigenous culture. Like it was supposed to be about like the pride of Mexico. And like, I I don't think we can really overstate that. And the government at first at this time, as they moved Chapingo, they funded the school to be the jewel that they really wanted it to be understood as. By the 1930s, however, funding slowed down, the facility began to deteriorate, and uh, in 1937, the students actually went on a four-day strike. Listen, I don't want to judge, but my college hadn't had any updates in like two decades, and their school was barely over a year old. Yeah, I mean, I think our bar here in the United States is just really low. We understand things are very expensive, and the quality is going to be very bad, and They know, meaning the schools, the government, whoever, that we're not going to do anything about it. But that would be unacceptable in other places. Now, the Minister of Agriculture under Cardenas, the socialist president, actually wanted to send the military after the students, and Cardenas refused. Now, ironically, that dude died trying to then overthrow Cardenas for his quote-unquote radical policies. Ah, projection. My favorite pastime. Yeah, it's really good for anxiety. It's not me, it's you. Yeah, and I feel like that's something that, you know, it's something maybe we could learn from this year in our Lord, 2023. No, I don't think so. Let's move on. Who's who's Lord? Just Andy's Lord. I'm your Lord, Elliot. No, I am Lord. Oh. Like the the, the New Zealand singer? That's me. Have we gotten oh, there? Oh, your Lord. Oh, okay. Yeah. That may, Okay, that makes sense. How do you think I afford this studio? Come on, guys. Like, I got that Lord money. Yeah. I think she could fight you for it probably take take her name back probably could i mean she could just sue me that that's also an option yeah let's just put all these ideas in her head yeah she is a big fan of the poor pearls almanac little fact i hope she i hope she listens huge fan i mean you think the lord doesn't listen to the poor pearls almanac i'm assuming she does that's why i'm talking to her right now yeah she's like waiting on every episode drop what's up girl Yeah. So anyways, Cardenas uh, listened to the students' grievances, got them the resources they asked for, and the student and faculty organized the faculty and student directive council. This is going to be important for what plays out with our, our good friends, the Rockefeller Foundation. I think it's pretty obvious that the students strongly believed in the mission of the school, that they were there to improve the lives of the poorest farmers in the country, and it was really their job to protect the school and the campesinas at all cost foreshadowing i don't know what you mean i've never foreshadowed anything in my life maybe like three shadowed but definitely not foreshadowed are you serious it's what how long have you been a dad you've been holding on to that for how long i mean for you like a couple years but like at least once a week that sounds like you've been cooking that one for you've been holding that in the back pocket for a while i'm not gonna let you get away with it Listen, I got to keep my content fresh for people. I can't deliver everything all at once. It's it's too much. You think this is fresh? It's so fresh. Oh my it's, god! It's <laughs> it's fresh like that maze from the uh, Rockefeller Foundation storage facilities. Go and get it. <laughs> it is the most niche joke I've ever made, and I've made some really niche comments. Yeah, that's um. I'm sorry. I like. Do we have to issue an apology? I mean, you can. I'm going to. 
You okay? Go for it. Listeners, I'm sorry. That's that's too niche. It's too much. We've gone too far. It's what the audience craves, all right? It's what they want. It's what they crave. This is my fault. The whole podcast the whole podcast is my idea. It is. And now you are here with me tonight in the year of our Lord 2023. Stuck here. Speaking to our audience who are learning a thing about a botany. I guess we reap what we sow. Hey. No. Ah, uh, yeah. Look at that. There we that was, go. That was I want out. <laughs> that was a golf clap. Solid Thanks. golf clap. All right. So things get back on track at the school. All right. So like the, the president's like, cool. Here's what you need. Let's do it. And then we get this new president, right? He's like, ah, oh, you know what? Instead of supporting our students, how about the Rockefeller Foundation? It's got Rockefeller in the name. It's going to make us rich. To be fair, while the school was like a major improvement from where it was three decades ago, it was still far from the uh, what you might call the academic rigor of most schools in places like the United States and Europe. For example, before the move, there was not a single faculty whose full-time job was teaching. That could be a good thing. That could be a bad thing. But it is definitely a thing, right? All of the textbooks that they used, a little more concerning, were written by teachers by hand. Not great, right? When the Rockefeller Foundation showed up with millions of dollars to spend, they basically rebuilt the school from the ground up. And that meant replacing and updating literally every single piece of equipment. And it was pretty clear that there were like some obvious perks to allowing this external funding. Yeah, I remember when uh, our school started to let soda companies bring in Gatorade into the school and then all the windows at the top of the gym that had cracks in it and were like broken and it was cold in the winter time, like those got replaced. So I can sort of respect that, see where that's going. Yeah, it was weird. Like they never talked about the fact that the stuff that was broken for like a decade, like randomly got fixed. Like, oh, it doesn't leak into the gym anymore. That's that's weird. It never leaked. What are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, I guess... We got sold out a little bit, but at least we had windows. At least we had windows going on the gravestone. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that going to be my last words? Or? Yeah, it could be. It's a nice epitaph. That's just that's just what I'm known for. At least we had yeah. windows. At least we had windows. Civilization, 2028. <laughs> now, the point is that the Rockefeller Foundation built a new school, partnering with the government for better or worse, and then hired over 700 people like Zolo to work in agronomy, keeping the best and brightest in the country who would have otherwise never worked in agriculture in Mexico. So basically, they were like bribing the next generation, both the future leaders and future general workers in agriculture. And with the model farms, like they were like convincing the general population. Is that right? I think so. You could just replace Rockefeller with Mondo Feller or Mondo Corporation. What was it called? I think it was called Mondo World. Or is that right? What? Mondo. It's brand no Bron- Brondo. Brondo was the drink. Yes, Brondo. Ah, uh, you know what it is? Um Mondo, Mondo, Mondo. Conglomo? No. What am I missing here? Uh, why am I Is this like Mondo a... Burger was from Green from from Good Burger? Oh Mondo Burger's from uh, Good Burger. Fucking Good Burger, that's what it is. You were thinking of Mondo Burger. I was thinking of Brondo and then went with Mondo because I thought the wrong thing. This is what, this is what happens when you get old, Matt. You just have mini strokes until they add up. And you, yeah, you're, and you're like, wait, you're, these things are real things. I just don't know your why. Your brain gets real smooth. Mm-hmm. 
I can it's I, really can, fun. I can feel my ridges just smoothing out every time we do an episode. <laughs> Smooth brain goals. Yeah, like you know the those TikToks of those kids that have like shaved their tires so that they're like silky smooth. They're That's what happens that to way. your brain. Yeah. It's literally what happens to your brain. And then what happens to those cars is also what happens to your brain. That sounds extremely dangerous. I haven't seen those, but I will look that up. Oh God. Yeah. So uh unlike our brains, the investments by the Rockefeller Foundation did have some successes. See, did you like that? I like brought That's... that right back together. Like, mwah, that was perfect. Yeah, our listeners aren't going to be confused at all. That was a tricky transition. Yeah, no. I mean, why would somebody be be confused by any of oh this? Oh my God, just continue. <laughs> None of our episodes are ever confusing. And that's the no, fun part about this podcast. It's your favorite part is that you have to pay attention. You're like, what the fuck are they talking about? And Jay, I think I've tried to listen to past episodes, Stoned, and I just have to keep rewinding. Is that since you've been on the show or is this like, I'm just saying there was a time when you listened and did not say that. Well, maybe I just didn't tell you that. I'm okay. sure. I mean, <laughs> we've unhinged since 2021. That's a good bumper sticker. Sorry. <laughs> Let, let's talk At about. At least we had windows. Oh my God. I don't know why I try to even keep this on task. Let's talk about the yields. These guys, the Rockefeller Foundation came in, they spent all this money. You know, they did have successes, okay? So, like, I know we spend a lot of time talking shit about the Rockefeller Foundation, for good reason, mind you, but they did have some successes. They had some of the highest yielding crops that had ever happened in the country come from the projects they were involved with. Obviously, that's a good thing, and um, they were very good at selling that and making everyone know the successes that they had. By 1959, because of a large endowment from the Rockefeller Foundation, the school opened the first graduate program in agronomy in the country. Everyone across Mexico and even the leaders of agriculture in the U.S. were touting the successes of the program. And, you know, that, that's what they used to sell to places like India and Africa about, you know, the future of the Green Revolution. Now, everyone supported it, except for, you know, one guy. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's our boy Zolo. Yeah, we would not be talking about it if it weren't for our boy. He taught at a few other places before coming to Chapingo, and uh, he found the other schools were really focused on industrial-scale farming, which obviously, being him, wasn't really his thing. Coming to Chapingo, it seems like, from an outsider's perspective, a weird choice. Like, this is the man. During his time between his expeditions and his tenure there, he'd been responsible for some of the most important discoveries around Korn's biological history, like we had talked about. You know, on, on a whim, he was hired to fix the citrus blackfly problem that had uh, basically plagued the entire Mexican citrus industry, NBD, plus his grass research at Harvard. And um, he was basically the guy that was known by like the global elite botanists to get like really important and rare species that ended up being important for research around the globe. His like common, you know, correspondence at the time were basically all of the most famous botanists in the world. By 1960, he was arguably the most important botanist out of all of them in the world. And here he was in, you know, Chapingo, the the state school. Okay, so he was comfortable with the Campesino class. He wasn't, you know, above any of it. He was going to work where he wanted to work, and that, that is what it is. Was he, was he supposed to be in like a erudite school somewhere? I don't know. It's interesting because he's this guy who, he's the top of the world. He can teach work anywhere, and he chose like the B-rate like 
kind of joke state school because of its values, you know, both the radical political background and its investment in very specific people within the within the state. Okay, so he's a man of the people. He is a man of the people. So is is someone that like kind of went to school to study in this area, I think what's really stands out in what you've just said is the like huge diversity of his knowledge, like over the course of his career. He's like mostly known for corn, but he was also like go to person for like pasture, which is like hugely different and citrus grasses palms and even like avocado research in california where he after after the story we tell we don't we're not going to talk about it but he ended up going and working in california for a little while in uh, avocado research and you know did some groundbreaking stuff there because why wouldn't you at you know after you've had this like ridiculously successful career there's such like a wide just scope of knowledge it's insane yeah it's absolutely just like beyond uh like if you took different chapters of his life each of them could be like a hall of fame botanist like every single period of his life from his 20 to 35 from 35 to 50 from 50 to 70 i gotta find this guy's weed journals yeah like each (laughs) of those sections if he was like just a white american dude each of those guys would all have their own like very important books and like people that are like doing odes to them and he did all of them. So let's talk about Chapingo. So he started teaching at Chapingo in 1954. Now, if you recall, I said earlier that he uh, was starting to get cut off from the Rockefeller Foundation in 56. And uh, the realization of that of what was happening in agriculture in Mexico started to become much more clear to him during these two years, where he was really starting to see how these people were being trained. Most of his time had been out in the field, right, doing that research, working with plants and farmers, not as a part of this academic system. In 1955, only a year after joining the Chapingo faculty, he gave a speech as vice president of the Mexican Society of Natural History. And he surveyed the recent history and the current status of biological studies. And he he mentioned a lot of solutions. He talked about government agencies, educational institutions, and organizations outside of Mexico. And he said that over the past two decades, there'd been an impulse to improve biological research in the country. Consequently, these groups, in quote, established new demands and paths for our biological education, end quote. Despite these successes, he pointed out that the shortage of instructors, the lack of pay for instructors, the rigidness of instruction based on outside forces, and, in quote, in concerns to our colleges of agriculture, it is my opinion that the country needs for agronomists to be fundamentally a a biologist with agricultural studies, discarding the old concepts of agronomists trained to be captives in a rigid category, end quote. Classic Tio Solo. Dude classic so classic now he he continued on to give a lot of recommendations and they were pretty simple pay instructors more require instructors to have doctorates do more to bring in researchers internationally to mexico and to understand the need to recognize the unique characteristics of mexico and work to conform agriculture to that landscape and that part is like huge and is like the total opposite of what the united states was trying to do right Lastly, he recommended that the school invest in scientific philosophy requirements as well as logic. I mean, that seems like a bit of a twist, but I think that's like that's like really important subjects for like any scientist. And I think I mean like a lot of the time philosophy is like really overlooked in 
like the teaching of like hard sciences because i think it's like looked down upon as a soft science or not even a soft science uh humanity yeah what is it yeah you call it humanities liberal arts yeah i think that makes sense if you want people to think outside of the box then it helps you define it helps if you know what the definition of the box is and how it's made and you know what those boundaries and limitations are parameters whatever you want to call it if you can better define that then you'd be able to think outside of it right that makes that makes sense yeah and like i think the this all points to like this really fundamental i guess like interdisciplinary nature of something like agriculture and ecology right he talks about biology being important instead of like being like yeah you don't need to necessarily know how to grow food you need to understand how plants work to understand how to grow food like it has to be much more fundamental than like the linear thinking and like kind of this very specialized siloed understanding of how agriculture works right agriculture is functionally like a domesticated ecology and you know ecology is everything so you need to understand i guess like everything right and understand it comprehensively no big deal that's like something that these like green revolutions and like teaching industrial agriculture has like i mean i'd say for like better or worse it's like pretty clearly the effects are like for worse is that like it's become very easy to break down like the science of growing food in that style outside of any sort of like ecological thinking yeah and i think you know it I think in hindsight, like now in 2023, it's like very easy to look back and be like, yeah, duh. But like, we're talking about 70 years ago. Right. Um, and, th- and that's like, you know, you have to think this is only 15 years in 10, 15 years into like the post-World War II petrochemical, like, oh, we can do everything just using fertilizers. Why would you ever, we, we have this limited supply of gas and petrochemicals we're never going to stop using gas cars because like we have unlimited amounts and there's no such thing as climate change. Like, you know, there, why would you even care about these things? It, it, it's really hard. I think from the, from our time frame to fully comprehend how like wildly ahead of his time this is. And like to be thinking like this right now, unsurprisingly, this is just going to blow your fucking tits clean off. The school did not care at all about his concerns. Dude, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so <laughs> so this didn't help him at all? This didn't help his relationship with the Rockefeller Foundation and the government? Yeah, no, not really. In meetings with the school's leadership, he's repeatedly quoted as saying that the problem was that there was a, end quote, U.S.-style focus on learning, research, and extension without an appreciation for the socioeconomic context, end quote. Well, I mean, that sounds pretty similar to, like, even critiques like nowadays where why the analysis economic analysis included in agroecology is so important and why it diverges so much from like traditional agronomic studies yeah or permaculture right right yeah so yeah he the man was ahead of his time and he was comfortable saying pretty like pernicious things publicly but even behind closed doors he was like even like clearly from what's been documented even more aggressive and his criticism of like the way things were going and um i I think that's really you know 
insightful and um, I think speaks to how his politics play out and kind of what we're going to talk about further. Now, at the Collegio, the graduate school that they uh, built around Chapingo, he was concerned that students were just basically regurgitating what the instructors said, and they weren't really engaging in new research. Uh, and that goes back to his point about like, we need research to be done here for here. It was in this like very mechanistic approach, he saw that people were graduating without the ability to contextualize any of the agronomy that they were learning. And they basically like ignored and even erased the agricultural roots of like Mexico and the campesinos. In another speech in 1956, when he roasted his audience again, he has a really poignant quote that I think is worth taking a listen to. In quote, the strangers who address our social problems do so based on foreign assumptions and social values, and consciously or unconsciously distort our social landscape. In doing so, they turn us into crude imitations of other places. Many of us suffer from this trauma. Our research displays this trauma. Today, our task is self-analysis, to study our own social roots until this point in time. End quote. Honestly, it sounds like he's just trying to get fired. Yeah, I feel like he's in one of those situations where he just he sort of knows he's too big to fail. I mean, his name was so important for the school that he could sort of probably get away with this and they would chew him out a little bit, but he was probably fine. So he was like Kanye. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, not the new Kanye. I think, I think that's an insult now. Um, yeah, no. How much like... And and you you might not know the answer to this. Like, how much was the like reputation of the school built around like his reputation of being like a insanely fantastic agronomist, or was that sort of like is there that reputation sort of a thing that's come about like after his death and in like modern time? So he was much more famous during his time than he is today. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look, if you do a Google search on him, and some people might have when we released part one, you'll find out pretty quickly, like, there's almost nothing written about him in English. Even, like, what comes up as, like, translated, uh, like, Spanish pages, there's not a whole lot. Even his Wikipedia page in Spanish is pretty short. Like, if you look at him next to, like, Liberty Hyde Bailey, it's, like, fairly significant. And I would argue that, like, Ephraim was much more impactful on uh, the course of human history. So I, I, despite the fact that he was famous, I don't think he was particularly important for the school. I think it was more of a decorum kind of thing. Like you've got this very famous worldwide person. You can't fire him, even though it's not like people aren't going to the school because he teaches there. They're going there because the Rockefeller Foundation has dumped all this money into it. And it's a good school. I don't know, like, I, I think about it, like, as an act, like, you think about, like, academics today that, like, you might freak out about, but, like, the average person doesn't know who it is, right? If you were to go to school at, at like, at U Chicago, and you were going to go study under, like, Walter Ben Michaels, it's like, I care about that, you care about that, like, six other people care about that, the people that have read his books care, but, like, the average person walking down the street doesn't care. Unless you're going to the PhD program, you're not going there because of him. And they didn't have any of these PhD programs or anything like that. Yeah, I guess when it comes to uh, when it comes to academics, people can be really like niche famous. Yeah, and I think because of the role agriculture had at this time in Mexico, and like I'm by no means an expert in Mexican history. What I, I do think, I know, I know, I I do think he carried a bit of weight with his name because of some of the stuff he had done to like bring honor to like traditional foodways, like with his work with maize 
So like, I, I think that that goes into it. There's like this cultural piece that like maybe this is going to sound like a terrible to, like, comparison, but I, I think it's actually really like apt, like Johnny Appleseed. Like we all know who Johnny Appleseed is. Historically, he's not actually that significant. I mean, I'm not even sure if he was actually a real person, to be honest. But like, I think he carries that kind of like cultural weight where he's like recognized as having this like very functional and uniquely importance for the history of the the identity of the country. But yeah, so he definitely was like going out there and talking shit, basically, and just being like, we're not doing things right. And we're not changing to get to the right way of doing things. And really, what we start to see is him like understanding these shortfalls in the Green Revolution, and how it's basically erasing what made Mexico, you know, Mexico. Funding for the Rockefeller Foundation at this time was quietly turned off, and uh, he suddenly stopped receiving any new contracts. In 1960, he had the opportunity to give a speech to the biggest names in the country, folks like the head of education. And you know, your boy did not waste the opportunity. In it, he railed against the destruction of Mexican identity in an attempt to recreate poor imitations of agriculture in other countries. He talked about ecological destruction and the shortfalls of education. He elaborated on how campesinos learned botany and agriculture. And this is another quote from, Oral transmission elders and adults among indigenous groups constitute the mechanisms for conservation and the accumulation and transmission of knowledge. This process occurred over generations. Peasants gained knowledge through an empirical method that had to stand the test of time and experience. End quote. Zolo suggested that the leaders at the centers of Mexican education design curriculum that should be based on peasants' botanical wisdom. Absolute king shit. El Rey. That's Spanish for king. Let that sink in that this man was talking about agroecology and indigenous stewardship before it was cool. We should also take a break, let that soak in, and uh, yeah, this is going to be a little bit of a longer episode, so take five and we'll come right back. It's going to be a soft 20. Soft 20. Soft 20 in the foreman. <laughs> uh, Elliot's just covering his face. Don't laugh the It's not funny. Elliot. It's not come funny. On. Have some respect for the no, jokes. No, it's not funny. Howdy there, fellow preppers. I'm Billy Dane, here to tell you about the latest in apocalypse preparedness, truly an all-in-one solution, Bullets and Beans by Bunker Corp. Our scientists here at Bunker Corp have developed a proprietary blend of pinto bean and 45 caliber ACP rounds canned together in a savory, non-corrosive sauce for your consumption and reliable combustion. When shit hits the fan, then ho ho ho, you know it will. You're down your dark bunker, long after your fuel sources run out and your batteries have died, bullets and beans will be there to provide you with a hearty meal. Best eating cold, simply open the can, carefully scoop out a mouthful, and spit out the premium center fire rounds. Within a few bites, you've got a full magazine and a full stomach. So remember folks, it's bullets and beans. For your all-in-one solution to nutrition and self-defense. Make sure it's part of your last days on Earth and don't forget to leave one round in the bottom of the can. <laughs> this is the year 1960. It was an important year in Mexican agriculture. One of the reasons why uh, this is an important year is because this is when the Rockefeller Foundation began to withdraw funding for these projects in Mexico while refocusing their efforts. This meant that Chapingo no longer had the funding it once had, which arguably wasn't enough to meet the massive campus that had been built in this flurry of excitement for the future. They basically left Mexico holding the bag, so to speak. 
At this time, 1960, the negative impacts of the Green Revolution were starting to become more clear, not just to Efrain, but to like the average person paying attention to agriculture, I guess. To be fair, there were clear advancements. You know, we talked about that they'd had some of these really great productive years. They were growing around 30% more corn from 1940 to 1960. Wheat production had improved by like 80%. They were exporting corn and meeting their demand as a, a whole country for the first time ever. Food exports had climbed considerably. And um, the seed banking for international sales was growing, mostly to the U.S., now, on the surface, everything seemed to be basically kind of following the dream the Green Revolution had plotted out. I feel like there's a but in here. Like, but. 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 And we're, we're getting there. So in 1963, the Rockefeller Foundation began to invest in the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center as a partnership with the Mexican government. And at the same time, the Mexican government decided the reason small farmers weren't adopting these new methods wholesale was because of financing. So, bum ba dum, micro lending became a chief concern for the agricultural movement. Oh no! Oh no! And we all know how the micro lending story goes. This whole thing, like we we talked about the fact that like this was invested by heavily by like American corporations, you know, John Deere to DDT to obviously the Rockefeller Foundation and others. But also, this was part of like a Cold War project by the US to keep the Soviets from gaining a bigger foothold in Central America, because, you know, Cuba and all the other cool stuff going on, you know, all these left leaning activities were making the US really double down on making sure the governments knew that they could never find a better ally than the US. And uh, this was just kind of the tip of the iceberg around policies to reach the farmers who, despite the successes of the Green Revolution, still hadn't come around to the idea of selling their soul to the devil. So we talked about the schools. We talked about the fact they had these radio shows where they would just like talk about the great things of like the Green Revolution. They had like trade magazines. They had uh, like traveling extension teachers who like literally had like trailers that they would bring around the whole fucking country to like talk about the greatness of like the better ways to grow food uh, and all that fun, cool stuff. Now, this was all part of President Diaz Ortaz, our, our good boy uh, Camacho, part of his plan to unify and destroy the image of poverty and ignorance, which pervaded the Mexican countryside. And that seems to kind of like oversimplify the situation. How are we defining the poor here? Yeah, and that's like obviously like a, a kind of a problem too. Like how we're the problem is that like they're not adopting these new farming systems. Not that like they're not getting access to like electricity, which obviously is like an individual fault that the power lines stop a hundred miles before your house, right? Yeah, that's kind of on you. Yeah, and me personally. Sorry, Mexico, in 1964, 63, sorry. You should have been on it. I should have been on it. Just saying. Yeah, you were 14 then. <laughs> I was 14 so we, then. so we figured out. <laughs> yes, uh, that, this was right after I shot JFK, so. And then we went to see Goldfinger. <laughs> right. Yes. The movie. The movie, Goldfinger for Matt. Sorry, I don't think we recorded that, did oh. we? Because otherwise, that makes no sense. That's that's a little inside joke. For... Matt, we were talking about Goldfinger, the band that did the cover of 99 Red Balloons, and Matt thought we were talking about the movie that we went to go see. And what year was it? 19, I think it was 64 or 67. Either way, Matt thought yeah, we were it, 14 I, in 1964. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how old? You guys are both like, what, like Boomers. 70 something? 
Uh, yes, <laughs> be my mom's age. So <laughs> I look good. So uh, right, <laughs> I look great for that age. Um, so this project to uh, restore and you know salvage the image of the rural Mexican fell under the new National Agricultural Council, which worked to improve agriculture and restore the native ecosystems across Mexico, or so they said. They managed all of these services, and uh, their headquarters was in Chapingo, entirely separate build-out for 500 students with the greatest resources south of the United States. Now, this project was called Plan Chapingo, which would make Chapingo home to the various agricultural colleges already in place in the region, but also it would be home to the National Institute for Agricultural Research and the Ministry of Agriculture and Livestock. I know, that's a lot. Basically, they shoved a whole bunch of schools as part of Chapingo. The thing is, there were already problems bubbling up with Chapingo's student body. Okay, so it sounds like they built a new program that does the exact same thing as the one that already exists does. So instead of working to improve that, they just went and reinvented the wheel. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes 100% sense. If you're an American, that is what we do. We throw things away and start over. AC needs a you know new outlet. Just throw buy it a new away. one. Buy a new one. New house. Yeah. Smart house. Come on. What do you want me to fix it? New bed. Foreman grill bed. Come Foreman on. Foreman grill bed. It'll cook Foreman you dinner. Foreman grill bed. <laughs> cook your dinner and keep your toes warm. Chicken tendies and warm toesies. It's the best I can do. Sorry. Was not my best work. Yeah, the students were aware of this fact that they were totally being like basically sidestepped. Now they have like their own student newsletters and things like that. And they actually highlight this fact and this frustration eventually transitioned to hostility. Much like Zolo had pointed out a decade prior, the students were being trained to be agronomic factory workers, not researchers, not developers, not consultants. They were learning how to do a very specific skill. Even though research continued to exist internationally, the students that they worked with were hyper-focused based on their program of study. Additionally, there was no interdisciplinary work. So for example, people that went to school for like irrigation only studied irrigation. Not a thing about plants, just irrigation. Yeah, so it sounds like a bit of context might be missing. What are you talking about? Does food not come directly from the irrigation? It's what plants crave, irrigation. What do you mean there's a plant in between? It is what plants crave. Let's let's wind the clock back a little bit. Now, think about their history. Remember uh, I talked about when those students witnessed that execution that happened, and then those students kind of took over, like the agricultural government jobs? When they eventually took over, they had put in place, like, oddly enough, military-style rules, which, you know, we could unpack that a little bit, but I don't, I don't want to. And they, they thought that by putting military-style rules in, or, in place uh, would create a sense of quality, and that had, until this point, kind of continued to hold. This directed much of the student body's relationship with the school. They believed they weren't there to question things, except for these counterculturalists that we'll talk about. You know, their, their work was for the greater good of Mexico, not to, like, criticize the school. But, you know, there was this really revolutionary spirit that, you know, this being the 60s in Mexico, if you know anything about the 60s, was kind of a time globally of, like, a lot of radical ideas and, like, pushing the limits of stuff, right? Everyone had hope for the boomers, and they turned out to not be great. But, you know, there was definitely this revolutionary spirit that existed. And um, I guess, like, what was most frustrating is students realized that they didn't know how to, like, identify a plant outside of a textbook. Okay, so it sounds like there's an undercurrent of 
wanting more in the student body, but did, I'm guessing the school didn't do anything to address any of this. Not really. Now, the student newspaper of these that was, again, written mostly by radicals, railed against poor instructors, employers that complained that students weren't prepared to enter the workforce, things like that. For example, in 1961, a film crew came to the school, and the students basically like bullied the crew for trying to paint a good light in the school. They even like taunted the crew for creating content to draw urbanites to the school. The argument being that the, uh, in quote, desktop agronomists were growing like a plague, end quote, despite the fact that they were kind of doing the same thing. Now, later the same year, the government of the state showed up for a talk, and none of the students arrived on time. Citing apathy is exactly how they explained why they didn't go to this talk. I wish I could cite apathy for more things. Right? That seems like a better way of doing things. Like, I just don't want to go. Yeah. You know, obviously, um, like I said, none of this was really happening in a vacuum. You know, you've got labor organizers getting arrested, guerrilla activities, the U.S. involvement in neighboring Nicaragua. And, you know, students were cautiously optimistic. So, for example, Chapingo's class of 1960 had named Fidel Castro the class's godfather. Okay. What, what is a class godfather? Uh, is it a classy godfather, though? That is the question. <laughs> I think it's... It's like I, the I godfather think it's like a, in, like, a better suit. Yeah, I think it's like a favorite class favorite person, like someone that represents their Can ideals. Can we bring that back? I feel like there should be more of those. Who would our class godfather be, Elliot? Joe Pesci? Yeah. Casino. I mean, I thought you were going to say Danny DeVito. Oh, Danny DeVito 2024. I, I, if you are listening to this, Danny DeVito, I will run your campaign for free. Please do it. We need you. I think I think the like main barrier to Danny DeVito getting to the White House isn't like the campaign manager's salary. <laughs> I will say. Uh, yeah, but maybe he just doesn't believe in himself the way I believe in him. Maybe. That's a good point. When I say Danny DeVito, I mean Danny DeVito as Frank from It's Always Sunny. Oh. <laughs> I would say Danny DeVito from Home Alone. Come on. Not from uh, Twins? What the fuck is Twins? Oh my god, Andy, are you kidding me? Is that movie with them? Um... Wait, who was the other guy? It was guy? Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're right. Ar so the movie Twins is about Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger being twins who were separated at birth. Yeah, that checks yeah, out. And they, they find out they're, <laughs> they're brothers. Twin brothers. Yeah. Is and they were like, like matching suits. It's really fun. It's really fun. Yeah. So you know what else is really fun? Efren Hernandez? I mean, yeah, but we, the fact that we're going to do a part three on this yeah. to uh, oh, yeah. talk about how this, this story an ends. and then long breeze gust of wind coming out of Andy's mouth. We're doing three parts on Efren Hernandez. Yeah. On your boy. Oh, my God. Did you know they made a follow-up to twins called triplets no they didn't it's with eddie murphy arnold schwarzenegger oh, yeah, Danny Trejo, and tracy morgan you're lying julius and vincent benedict discovered they have a third sibling i'm not lying it is maybe not interesting to our audience but pretty fun i cannot believe we should this. watch you it should definitely watch that i did not know they made a twitch I did watch not know they made a sequel to this that's funny <laughs> that is, I can't even believe you found that. <laughs> I just Googled Anyways, Twins movie. Yes. If you want to watch that with us, let us know. We will live stream. get sued yeah, by watching it on Twitch. We definitely have to get a uh, watch party going for that. Yes. Anyways, we'll see you guys in a couple days when part three comes out. Yep. Have fun. Yep. See you in 24 hours. Yep.